This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the new season. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. I think one of my CEO clients said, availability is this year's innovation. If you have product on the shelf, that's better than any new product introduction that's coming along. That was Dan Swan. He's a leader in McKinsey's operations practice. He recently joined me and McKinsey partner Knut Alika to talk about the ways in which CEOs worldwide are adapting to and managing continued supply chain disruption. And right after, we'll hear from Oscar Vuela Garcia, an early tenure consultant who left academia for a career at McKinsey. Dan and Knut, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having us. Dan, what's going on with supply chain executives and and how are they feeling these days? I mean, I think it's a very interesting time because for a lot of supply chain executives, the three factors combined to make it basically the scariest environment imaginable from a supply chain perspective, right? You've got the inbound material costs going up exponentially, you know, some categories or some commodities up 50, 60, 70% year over year, which obviously has major implications on the cost structure. Then you have real challenges finding labor. And then we are also seeing major challenges from a transportation perspective. So not only inbound containers from Asia, but also just literally finding trucks to carry products. I can't get people and then I can't get the product out to my customers. It's a really scary environment for leadership. So now what's driving the labor challenges? I do think it's most acute in the U.S. right now, although we see it in other forms across the globe. Um, I think there's a bunch of underlying factors to this. The job openings rate is about 50% above pre-pandemic levels. So literally open jobs that people are having a hard time filling. And so the ability to actually have people working in your manufacturing plant or your distribution center is a real challenge. So we've had millions of people actually leave the labor force since COVID started. On top of that, the pandemic has actually accelerated a bunch of trends that were happening in terms of technology and automation, which just creates a further gap between the capabilities that some people have and the capabilities they need to be able to work successfully in this new environment. And then the other layer that I would add to it that's just very interesting is pay matters it's necessary, but not sufficient, right? So what we've seen is there's a real mismatch between what employers think their people value and what the employees themselves value. And so this notion of finding the right purpose that they want, being committed to the company that they're working for, all of those things matter just as much as the compensation to people. You mentioned that the challenges are uh, are quite acute in the United States. I'm wondering, Knut, how's Europe doing then? So speaking about Europe, we have also a labor mismatch. We did a survey amongst supply chain executives. And what we see here is that nearly all of them said they lack digital talent. And this digital talent is required for planning, right? If you think about demand planning, supply planning, inventory management, production planning. So here they want to build up significantly. And this is basically done in two ways. One is that they have their existing labor force and they want to reskill. So that means that you teach advanced analytics, machine learning, all of these uh, new cool stuff. And then they're looking for talent outside their organization. And this is clearly something where we see a big gap. So it, there's just no one available who could fill these roles, especially in the planning functions. 
To what degree would you say that the pandemic has played a role in this mismatch? It's been massively exacerbated through the pandemic. Think about things like the demand for e-commerce. Well, that leads to a totally different supply chain requirement in terms of warehouse labor, in terms of transportation labor. At the same time, people have questioned, you know, what are we doing and what's the purpose in life? I would think of this as more of a trend and a trajectory that we were on that just got put on a massive accelerant and we weren't necessarily ready with the infrastructure of solutions. And then you see the gap between the companies that were further along on that dimension before the pandemic have weathered the storm much more effectively than those that weren't, even though everybody is having challenges. Are there examples of organizations that are successfully addressing the talent gap? I think the interesting thing is there's been a shift from people thinking about talent and capability building as an enabler to people viewing it as a strategy in and of itself, which I think is a really important mindset shift for leaders to think about as they try and get this piece right. But maybe a couple things that we'd call out. One is just getting much more scientific and analytical around why are people leaving. The challenge is at each company, there's a specific skill set, there's a specific capability, there's a specific talent that is helpful to be successful over the medium to long run. And so what we saw is and when people weren't intentional about that, they saw just massive attrition. And so one of the things people are doing is getting much more analytical around their HR capabilities and what are the priorities for both attracting and retaining talent. So what really matters to their people? The second thing is that people are getting more aggressive in capability building and how they're prioritizing supporting the frontline workforce, upskilling them, having clear career pathing as part of their value proposition. You know, one company, they actually built a formal digital academy that was focused on capability building. And so they've been driving this organizational wide transformation at every level, whether that's infrastructure and technology to actually upskilling the frontline workforce. And they've seen output of 75% in terms of labor productivity. There's not a silver bullet out there, but really people thinking about this problem holistically, everything from who they attract, how they retain, and how they build the capabilities of their team to be more productive going forward. Knut, we hear a lot now about employees changing the way that they work. I'm curious how CEOs are acting differently um, in the in the face of supply chain challenges. Yeah, that's an interesting question, Roberta. And what we saw from our client work over the last 18 months, supply chain got to the CEO agenda. So before it was always like supply chain was seen as, yes, it's necessary. It's not really sexy, right? It's only visible if things go wrong. And now that is different. We had one client that was quite interesting, and that is also true for other CEOs as well. He basically, in his investor briefings, he started to mention supply chain. Due to the pandemic, it's on their agenda. He mentioned it, that this makes sure that we get the stuff to our customers. They were even able, as they managed the pandemic better than other, they were able to increase their market share, which was just amazing. So CEOs need to think about supply chain as a clear enabler for their success. Right? They need to think and they need to pay attention to supply chain, to all the issues we saw and to the issues going forward. They need to make sure that they invest in resilience to make sure that the supply chain can deliver as it's meant to be. 
I was just going to add, because I thought it was a, a really interesting question on the mindset and how this role of the CEO has evolved. And Knut and I have joked a few times, we've never been more popular in our lives than we've been over the last 12 months. One of the reasons why it's been a real important role for the CEO to play is when we've seen a real mindset shift, right? Where oftentimes in the past, supply chain was what I would call a necessary evil, right? You needed your supply chain there to get product to your customer. And I think we see it now more and more. It can be a real differentiator for companies. I think one of my CEO clients said, availability is this year's innovation. If you have product on the shelf, that's better than any new product introduction that's coming along. And the second reason why I think it has become more and more important is Look, supply chain is the most cross-functional part of your business, right? It involves sales, sales and marketing. It involves finance to understand some of the trade-offs you make. It involves manufacturing. It involves procurement. To really get the end-to-end supply chain right, you need the whole organization actually working together. And when you have that mindset of it's a potential strategic differentiator, the role of the CEO in helping the entire organization and the entire leadership team to mobilize around that is quite different. So how are you advising CEOs in terms of productivity versus growth? What are the key messages for CEOs there? Honestly, it's an age-old dilemma, right, of how you think about growth versus productivity. However, I think a couple things that are unique about this environment. Before COVID, we were talking about you know, currency fluctuations. We were talking about trade and tariff challenges. We were talking about Brexit and the implications that would have on the global supply chain. We've had, you know, cargo ships get stuck in two of the largest canals in the world. And so all of that to say, some of the challenges we're seeing with supply chain that make delivering on productivity more and more complicated, we think are things that are likely going to be here to stay. And so what that implies for our leadership is that people need to think about productivity with a slightly different mindset, which isn't how do I build a supply chain that's the absolute lowest cost, assuming that everything goes right? And instead, how do I build a supply chain that has the right productivity levels for the resilience and the speed that I want my supply chain to deliver on? We've done some research through McKinsey Global Institute that suggests that every 10 years, there's kind of 40% or so of one year's profit that gets lost to supply chain disruption. So on average, that's 4% a year. The challenge is it never happens like clockwork 4% a year. It's spiky and it's very hard to predict. And so what we're really encouraging people to think about from a productivity perspective is thinking about it holistically and assuming that you're going to have some challenges and try and really understand what are the high risk places in your supply chain and build the capabilities around that so that you have a better opportunity to actually deliver on the productivity that your organization needs. So I would agree to Dan, productivity will be redefined. The productivity we looked into in the past was always, hey, we can improve by 5% per year. Now, if we take into account that there will be these disruptions, we will see the next disruption around the corner. It will not be a pandemic. It will be something different. So we need to make sure that we have a resilient setup that is meeting our productivity goals. At the same time, we see a lot of industries that have a, a lot of growth these days. So basically, you need to manage both, but you need to manage it with the availability in mind, and you need to manage it with the resilience in mind. It's also interesting that we see a lot of companies these days that are maximizing their margin, right? Because they can kind of utilize the productivity they have. They don't need to give discounts because of the availability. That will also change in the future, in which will be a, a very interesting discussion going forward. What are some ways that CEOs can lead that discussion or think about 
being more resilient, particularly in supply chain. So a couple of thoughts to that, uh, Roberta. So first of all, you set up something like a nerve center. You make sure that you fix your supply issues. You have a couple of people in a room and they have all phones and then they talk to the suppliers and make sure that stuff is available. This is good to bridge kind of a short-term issue. But then we need to also make sure that we have a kind of a midterm solution. So here, business continuity management comes into play. And what you do here is basically on a weekly basis, you think about, hey, what is the scenarios that we need to solve for? And it might be a plan that is not able to work. It might be that we are in a lockdown. It might be that a supplier is not able to deliver. Then you come up with, let's say, scenarios to evaluate. Should we increase inventory? Should we move production orders? Should we fly over stuff? So that might come with a higher cost. And then you decide, hey, what should we do? But then there's also a structural resilience. Here you look into, hey, what is our sourcing strategy? You need to make sure that you also talk to R&D. You need to design components in a way that you can use them in a different setting. You even might want to talk to your customers, do demand shaping, and with this, be more flexible on how you execute. And as Dan said, so this is something where you really need to involve the end-to-end -end supply chain, sales, procurement, manufacturing. You need to have everyone together to make sure that you define this resilience. And the one thing I would say is every supply chain executive knows that growth is your biggest friend for driving productivity. It is much more complicated to drive productivity in an environment where you've got demand declining versus in an environment where you've got increasing demand. And so I think we would kind of challenge the notion that there's a trade-off between growth and productivity. And we'd actually say that when you're set up to drive productivity You can often reinvest in the things that are required to drive growth and having top line performance actually and helps you to build a more sustainable productivity platform within your supply chain. How will this pandemic period affect the way that people do their scenario planning? So in terms of scenario planning, you want to look into your supply and then you come up with different scenarios to solve. And you want to evaluate those scenarios from a financial perspective to be able to decide. Now you could say, hey, This scenario planning is something that we in supply chain talk about since years. Reality is that it was not implemented to the extent necessary. So we also see here companies that were early adopters of end-to-end -end planning processes, thinking in scenarios, also thinking in probabilities are much better because they now have the options to compare different scenarios where other companies often even struggle to calculate a scenario and then have no alternatives. Are there examples of companies that are making these shifts or managing supply chains differently as a result of what's gone on? We had one company where we started with this weekly process, looking into how can we make sure that we have the production capacity available. And one important element was the test equipment. And this test equipment, we needed to have a, a lead time of some like eight to 10 weeks to shift it between the different plants. So we calculated a scenario, hey, what happens if we shift it to another plant? What would happen? And another scenario would be, no, we don't shift it, right? So we leave it where it is. And then evaluated the availability, the service, the financial implication of shifting it over to decide. I think one of the things we've seen is people take a much more aggressive look at their supply base. And one example I've seen is talk to a client of mine early in the pandemic, and they were very excited because they had gone around and they said, look, we're in really good shape with all of our suppliers in terms of inbound materials. And they called a week later and said, 
whoops, actually almost all of our tier two packaging companies are in the same region of the world and they're having a real challenge, right? And so this visibility into your tier one, but also tier two and potentially further upstream and trying to build more resilience where we make sure we've got at least a couple qualified suppliers versus having all of your eggs in, with a single supplier. I think the second thing we're seeing, we had a survey early in the pandemic that said something like 60 or 70% of companies were thinking about shifting manufacturing capacity around. Only about 10% or so of them have gotten around to doing it so far, just because those aren't things you do in days and weeks. A company I know has shifted a meaningful portion of their manufacturing base from Asia to North America, right? The idea being that they're not going to put 100% of their capacity in North America, but to have the flexibility when things go wrong to have more of their production in region, right? The same region as their customer base. And then the third thing we're clearly seeing that Canute hit on was this notion of real transparency. How do we have real-time visibility to what's actually happening with our supply chain? You know, there were companies that would do monthly or even quarterly reviews of their supply chain performance. And now our people are moving to daily or even hourly reviews of performance because a week and months is too long in this environment that we're living in, given all the variabilities. I did want to turn our attention now to this topic of inflation. In what ways is inflation playing a role in supply chain pain? This is just very simple and very obvious, but you know, when inflation happens, the cost of the input materials goes up meaningfully and creates real pressure on the P&L. And some companies have a better ability to pass on price than others. You see how much of your cost increases can you cover by passing through pricing to your customers and how much are you left holding the bag on? And then what can you do about it? It's a very simple and very obvious, but has real meaningful implications on overall company performance. I think the second thing we see from an inflation perspective is it can lead to really interesting decisions. When the Texas freeze happened, you had a major implication on production of polyurethane in the US. And typically, it's very much a product that can regulate the pricing discrepancies across regions. But what we've seen is for that product, massive increases in price in the US and relatively stable pricing in China. Well, in traditional times, we'd fix that by bringing product from China to the US. Companies would shift decisions around how they think about sourcing. Well, the reality is in an environment where you can't get containers of anything from China and it's really expensive to get stuff over, it's led to an actual discrepancy in terms of the cost between the different parts of the world, which is a really unusual phenomenon in terms of a global supply chain. Mm -hmm. We think about the global um, supply chain and global inf inflation. Are we seeing different sorts of impacts in different parts of the world or is this just sort of a common a common thread, a common issue across all countries and sectors? The short answer to your question is yes. And what I mean by that is everybody knows about semiconductor shortages, there's steel challenges, basically transportation costs are up across the board. And then there are places where there are pretty meaningful differences across the globe. And then there's places where even in one part of the country, there can be pretty major differences in terms of the inflation of individual products, right? So if you look at food products and commodities, you know, what's happening for row crops is very different than fruits and vegetables. 
how it actually manifests itself is pain for everybody, but varying levels of pain depending on what products you make and where you're based. No, that makes perfect sense. Quick question about whether we think that we're in sort of an aha moment for supply chain leaders. In 10 years from now, will we look back on this time and say, yeah, this is when we we learned that we needed to do X or Y. We needed to get it right. I hope that we will look back and say that, hey, there we finally understood it. To give you an example, we had crises before. So Fukushima was 10 years ago. And when we prepared to help our clients, we basically took the stuff that we developed like 10 years ago, and we found that, hey, this is still valid, right? So why did companies not apply this on an ongoing basis? And it's very clear, you kind of manage the crisis, the crisis is over, and you go back to normal. And this is what we also see here. We have a boost of digital. We have a boost of resilience. In 10 years, hopefully we look back and say that, hey, this was really the start of our accelerated digital journey to significantly improve the performance of our supply chain. 10 years later, what I think will be interesting was, will people follow through on some of the bigger structural changes that will set them up more strategically going forward? So things like product design, you can design a product that's much easier to source and have much more resiliency, by the way, also more sustainable products from an environment perspective. So there's a whole bit of, are we going to actually redesign and design our new products to be much more resilient, much more sustainable, much easier to operate from a supply chain perspective? Are we going to build our networks, whether it's manufacturing or distribution, to have much more resiliency? Think about the trade-offs of the absolute lowest cost conceptually versus the practical cost that you'll pay when you have disruptions or you have to expedite things around the world. You know, things like strategically the role that supply chain will play in terms of productivity, like we talked about earlier. I'm quite confident that some of the specific things and the more short-term actions that people have taken will manifest and continue to live on. And I'm really hopeful that the rubber will also hit the road on the bigger structural changes that people are talking about. Thank you both for joining today. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks a lot. That was an interesting conversation with Dan and Knut. I learned so much more about supply chains, but the whole time, Lucia, that I was listening to them talk about supply chains from the corporate perspective, all I could think about was the fact that I still can't get a polo shirt <laughs> with my son's school logo affixed to the to the breast pocket. Um, in order for him to go to school and not get detention. <laughs> we ordered this thing in July or August, and it only just got the shirt in October. I know. You know, I have to say, Roberta, this supply chain business is just radically disrupting my approach to holiday giving. Um, I feel that I should already be planning gifts and there's just, it's just not going to happen. It's going to be a lean holiday this year, I fear, unless the supply chain can deliver for me. <laughs> I feel the same way. And actually, Lucia, what you should do, your list should include things like disinfecting wipes, <laughs> toilet paper, all the goods that we knew that we could not get at the height of the pandemic. That will seem like, still seem like a gift and gold. <laughs> this year. <laughs> okay, and now it is time to meet Oscar Vivela Garcia, an early tenure consultant based in Boston. I did a PhD in, in physics before uh, before joining the firm five years ago. I came to MIT. I spent almost three years uh, working as a researcher and uh, as a faculty member. 
first at MIT and then at Harvard. And in particular, my topic was quantum computers and in trying to find practical applications of, of this technology. There has been many times where I've arrived to a new client and I've said, my background probably doesn't, doesn't align perfectly with what these guys are doing, right? And, and in many, many times our clients have uh, industry experience of like 20 years. I think the more I've done it, right, uh, the more I've realized that what, what I'm bringing to, to the table is the ability to solve problems uh, fast and kind of like communicate those findings in, in a way that people, that people can understand and that, that it's meaningful. So for, for instance, I did this project for a big retailer in the US to build a loyalty program from scratch. Part of our work or like the work that I did uh, was to understand when a customer purchases something at a very specific time, what are the elements that make that customer come back again? How long does it take? How valuable a certain customer is, right? And then with all that information that it's a lot of data analysis, problem solving with the entire team and, and also with our client. Another piece of it was predicting or forecasting what was going to be the, the financial impact. And, and that's something that, for example, like coming from a scientific background, is not, is not something that is super hard to learn. And, and you can actually be good at it uh, very fast. I mean, the tricky part is to be able to work with different teams, be, being able to communicate uh, well, so for instance, I was serving a, a client in telecom company where basically we were developing a new app for them. There had been a previous version of that app that a business unit had owned. And then I needed to work with one of the leaders in, in that business unit basically to learn the key elements of what they had done and eventually transition the tool to a different business unit. I noticed a lot of pushback and like not trying to help from the client. And basically the, the bottom line is, it's not that the client was not a nice person, didn't want to help or so, right? But there was an element of probably that the client felt threatened because something that they owned, right, was going to leave that business unit and go somewhere else. And we seem to be the bad guys who were going to do that, right? So just understanding that, which took me a, a little bit, then allowed me to approach the problem in a, in a different way. Because then it's like, it's more about where's the person that I'm talking with coming from? Empathy. Because if you fail to understand that, right, like the human side, the personal side of it, then it can be tough for you many times to, to make progress. At the end of the day, it's all about, it's all about people. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on mckinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks.